Welcome back to the Locust Cove Podcast. You are listening to our Wednesday night Bible study. And this Wednesday, we answered your questions. We've been mentioning at the end of every one of our podcast episodes that you can submit your questions, of course, through our email, locustgrovebaptistchurch at gmail.com, or you can get those to us through the website or Facebook page. We had some great questions this week, and we look forward to being able to answer some more of your questions. So continue to submit those questions, whether it be theology questions, Bible history questions, or just practical how to live Christian in a post-Christian society. So we look forward to getting even more of your questions, and we look forward to being able to answer those on occasion on these Wednesday nights. We hope that you're blessed and challenged by what you hear. So this first question is, why do we say Christians still sin every day, even though 1 John 3 verses 4 through 10 and 1 John 5.18 seem to state the opposite. Now, I've paraphrased that question uh, just a little bit and hopefully encompassed the idea of the question and the way that I've uh, trimmed it down and paraphrased it. But the question really is, uh, we're all the time talking about as Christians, we're still sinners, but that doesn't seem to be uh, what John is saying in 1 John. So uh, let's go directly to the text that has been referenced in this question. We'll start... Uh, in 1 John chapter 3, that was chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now let's go ahead and read this other verse on over in chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. So same book. Chapter 5, verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. So again, the question is, why do we say that Christians uh, continue to sin, that we are sinful people, when these two passages that we just read in 1 John seem to be saying that the opposite is true, that we won't sin anymore. Now, I want to begin here from a practical perspective, okay? If we, if we interpret these verses to mean that we as Christians no longer commit any sins, then what do we call the bad things that we do, right? What, what, what do we say about the things that, uh, that we do that we shouldn't do? Now, this is, a, this, this is not an uncommon question, right? This is a question that's been asked a number of times, and uh, there are 
maybe not a large number of people, but there are a number of people who have um, some the- theologies that would align with the ideology that Christians no longer sin, and they would use these verses as defense. And so we're going to talk about that. But the question then is, what do we call um, the bad things that we do? And even in personal conversations with people about this, I've heard them say, well, it's not sin. It can't be sin, but maybe it's a mistake, right? Or maybe it's a setback. So all sorts of different adjectives, but I mean, let's be honest, it's kind of like putting lipstick on a pig, isn't it? It's still a pig. doesn't matter what you call it. Uh, disobedience is sin, right? And so we might even call it disobedience, but it's still sin. Now, in addition, why could we not just, if this is the, if this is the case, right? If, if what John is saying here in 1 John is that we, uh, we no longer sin, then why couldn't we just say, that we can live as we please, right? Uh, we, can, we can make as many mistakes as we want because now that we're Christians, it's not called sin anymore, right? It's, it's not sin for us. And so uh, we can just live however we would please. Now, someone who would support uh, this sort of theology, and I don't think the person that asked this question is, uh, is in favor of any sort of theological error. That's not the point here. They're wanting a clear understanding, and that's what we're getting to. Uh, but someone who would support this sort of ideology or this sort of theology would say, uh, well, well, that's, that's true, but if you are truly a Christian, then you wouldn't want to do those sorts of things that you shouldn't be doing, right? But the reality is, we still do the sorts of things that we shouldn't be doing. You don't have to name it, but we're all family here, so raise your hand if you've done something this week or thought of something this week that you shouldn't have done or shouldn't have thought. Anybody? Okay, so we're all guilty of that, right? And if this, is, if this is the idea, right, that a true Christian wouldn't be doing those types of things, well, then we would have to say there's no such thing as a true Christian. Now, I'm taking this, uh, I, I'm taking this approach, and this is really a, a practical, philosophical perspective. Uh, not, the reason I'm starting here is not because um, the life experience or even philosophy in and of itself is authoritative. It's not, right? We don't, we don't take our experiences and then interpret the Bible through it. But uh, what I want to do is point out uh, some, of the, uh, some of the contradictions that exist when you start trying to apply the idea that, uh, that Christians can't sin in order to set the stage uh, for us to understand that it's not at all what John is trying to communicate here. So, as we begin to think about this a little bit more, uh, we have to realize that, uh, that, that Scripture is always consistent, right? Uh, there exist no contradictions in Scripture. Now, there are certainly things that may seem contra- contradictory to you and I, right? We do see several of those examples in Scripture, and sometimes those contradictions can be boiled down to a difference in languages, right? Um, other times... Uh, what we're doing is we're actually looking at two passages of Scripture as contradicting one another when we should be looking at them as helping us interpret one another. Because the very best way that you can interpret Scripture is not turning to the commentary of whoever the best theologian you know is. The best way to interpret Scripture is using Scripture. Right? Scripture does a really good job of explaining itself. If you know how to, if, if you really know how to study and you really know how to, to draw from the depths of its 
truth. Now, for the sake of time tonight, I want to focus primarily on 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, there's two passages of Scripture referenced here, but really uh, verse 18 is a summary of what's being communicated in that first passage there in 1 John chapter 3. Now, when we look at the tense, right, when we look at the tense of the Greek verb for sin, we begin to get a more clear picture here. Now, the verb is a present tense verb in this case. And listen, I know we don't have a room full of Greek scholars, but um, the tense of verb is actually really easy to identify in Greek because the verb is going to be spelled differently depending on what tense it's in. And that doesn't always happen with English, right? Uh, so like if I, say, if I say play, I could be talking about playing now or I could be talking about playing in the future, right? Um, now if I say I will play, then we've modified that verb and we know that it's in the future. But with Greek verbs, the, the, the spelling is always different. So all you have to know um, is either the prefix or the suffix, if you will, that attaches to the verb and what tense that's in. Now, uh, so I just say all that to say it's really easy to tell most of the time, uh, not all the time, but most of the time what tense a Greek verb is in. So as a result, there, there are really some, some good English translations that try to encompass the tense of the verb here. So, so we might say something like this. We know that everyone who has been born of God, right, and then translate the verb this way, does not, this is important, keep on sinning, right? So 1 John uh, 3, 9 has the same issue. No one born, we might say no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has never been born of God, right? When we think about this as a present tense verb, that's the idea, right? The, the idea of continuing to sin, the idea of habitual sin, right? It's not, it, John's not talking about a one-off instant, right? He's talking about true believers will not keep on sinning, right? Um, if greed is an issue then uh, true believers will not keep on being greedy, right? If lust is an issue, tr uh, true believers will not continue on lusting. Now, listen, I I'm, I'll be the first one to tell you, it's sometimes a, a, a cop-out just to, just to pull rank and say, if we all understood Greek, then we wouldn't have these issues, right? And there are cases, many cases, where it's really helpful uh, to know the original languages. But... I'll also step back and say that this really isn't the key issue to understanding this question. You can actually understand the answer to this question without knowing anything about uh, the Greek language. Now, again, the idea of this Greek present tense verb here for sin is being used uh, so that those who are born again have uh, to tell us that they have the Spirit of God in them, right? Uh, and so if, you ha if you've been born again, if you have the Spirit of God in you, here's what John's saying. You will never be able to make peace with sin. Right? You'll never be able to rest with sin in your life. You, you can't do it because the Spirit of God is in you. You can't settle in with sin. You can't make sin your friend. You can't be okay with it. Right? You can't just go on sinning as though uh, no war needs to be made against it. And, of course, we obviously can't say that nothing will come of it if we do go on sinning. So the present tense says, no, you can't do that. You can't make a practice of sinning like that. But... Even if you don't know Greek, 
you don't have to trust me and you don't have to trust my Greek knowledge at this point because there are a couple of other reasons uh, why, again, non-Greek readers know that this text does not mean uh, that Christians can't do anything wrong or that Christians don't still commit sins. First, uh, let's look at verse 16 in chapter 5. Right, You've heard me say several times, uh, you'll hear me say hundreds of more times, uh, context is king, right? When we interpret the Bible, we have to understand the context, right? We don't just isolate verses of Scripture. So look at verse 16. If any man sees his brother, okay? So when we're talking about brother, we're talking about spiritual brother here, okay? We're talking about in the family of God. Um, this is big for John as he writes these three letters, right? You, you see him referring to believers as little children, right? He's using a lot of family language. And so, uh, again, verse 16, if any man sees his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask. He shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that, that, that he shall pray for it. Now the same thing is true. Flip over to chapter 1. I'll explain how these fit in our context. Flip over to chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. This is really important in light of the two passages that we began with. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, right? It's we. John's talking about we. He's talking about us. He's talking about believers, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Pretty clear, isn't it? But it also, the first two passages of Scripture we read seem pretty clear too. Now, we've already helped that out a little bit by talking about uh, Greek, but the meaning here of 1 John 5.18, I think, uh, in, in the context, at least the first and obvious meaning would be this. The one who is born of God, right? The person who is born of God does not sin unto death. So now we're putting, these, we're putting our context clues together, Right? The, the person who is born of God does not sin unto death. That is, we don't, we don't make peace with sin, right? We don't settle into this pattern of sinning that will destroy us in the end, right? We, we prove, the way that we prove that we're truly born of God uh, and that we are truly Christians is we make war with sin in our lives. We don't settle into sinful patterns. And the way that you and I make war with sin is not because of our strength, but it's because of the Spirit of God in us. Now, of course, Christians, we, we walk in the light. That's one of the ways we describe uh, the Christian life. And according to what we read here in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, uh, walking in the light is not necessarily a sinless walk. But what it is, is it's walking in a way that you have eyes to see, uh, the, you, you, you have light to see, if you will, the ugliness of what you just did. You have, you have the light to see uh, the, the horrible thing that you just said. Right? You did it, you said it, and immediately you realize it. Right? That's, that's sort of what we're talking about in this walking in the light so that we can clearly see the ugliness of, of what is in us or what we have said or done. And then, of course, we're, we're sorry for it, but we're not just sorry for it. We confess it, right? We, uh, we, we, we confess our sin before God. We repent of our sin before God. Uh, we trust Him to forgive us, and we move on. So I would submit that uh, does not sin in both 
passages of Scripture that we considered, both passages of Scripture that were included in this regular question, or in this original question, I would submit that it means, number one, doesn't commit the sin unto death, right? And this is habitual sinning that will eventually destroy us. Someone who is a true believer does not do that. But number two, I would say that does not sin means doesn't settle into a pattern of sinning that proves that you do not have uh, the Spirit dwelling in you, that proves you don't have a genuine spiritual life in you. So uh, that, that's, that's really the two ways I think uh, that does not sin should be understood. Now it's a lot real fast. Does anyone have any follow-up questions to, um, to that specifically before we move on to our next one? Yes, sir, Mr. Ray. Would not the fact that uh, Christ is set down at the right hand of the Father interceding for us be proof right there that there's still sin because we're in the flesh? The fact that he needs to intercede before us is what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Anyone else? The only sin under death that I can think of is failure to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that will send you to hell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that's in mind here, but I do think John is thinking in the practical sense of um, if you're an alcoholic, that's a sin, and you can drink yourself to death. Right? And so I do, spiritual death is in mind, the eternal spiritual death that comes uh, from denying Jesus Christ as Savior, which is the ultimate sin, right? That's the culmination of all sin. Um, but I do think John has in mind the practical sense of, uh, you know, the thing about sin, um, there's no such thing as a sin that is victimless, is there? Every sin has a victim, right? Someone is hurt by every sin. Um, and especially the person who is sinning. And so uh, there, there are very real physical, uh, physical effects from our sin, at least at some point, and with some sins it's more obvious than others. So now here's one that uh, it is a, it's a theology. Uh, it, it hits the realm of theology, but it also hits the realm of Christian philosophy a little bit. And there's actually a really big conversation here uh, that could be had. There's probably a lot of follow-up questions and so if we get some, we'll, we'll try to figure out how long it's going to take to answer those and maybe we'll, we'll put them off um, to the next time. But the question is this, did God create Satan and his angels or were they there from the beginning? So it's basically who, who created Satan, right? Um, did God create Satan or did someone else create Satan or was Satan just always there? Now, I'll be honest, the Bible never explicitly tells us where Satan originated, right? There's not a whole lot of details about his origin. Now, he presumably came into existence, uh, clearly came into, some, into existence sometime um, after the creation of God's perfect world in Genesis 1.31 and then prior to his appearance um, in the Garden of Eden there in chapter but despite these unknowns, uh, th there are several things that I can think we can say with certainty about Satan and his origin. Uh, first, and very simply, God created him. Uh, God created Satan. 
Uh, now, Scripture proclaims that all things were created by God and for God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. And then Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. So Scripture is pretty clear. There is no thing that exists that God did not create, right? God has always been, and everything else has been created, and it has been created by God. Now here's where this gets even more interesting, right? Because obviously when we think of Satan, we think of evil, right? We think of corruption, we think of sin, uh, we think of original sin. And yet we know that God is the source of all goodness, isn't He? Uh, everything that comes from God is good. Everything that comes from God is beautiful. Everything that comes from God is truth. God only creates things, this is important, God only creates things that are consistent with His nature. God can't create something that's inconsistent with who He is. And so His nature is not sin, His nature is not evil, and so He, uh, he can't create something that is that way. Every facet of creation, whether in heaven or on earth, was originally, as uh, Genesis puts it, very good. Originally, it was very good. As Paul simply observes in 1 Timothy 4, 4, everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good. His, God's character is wholly 100% pure. There isn't a shred of darkness or deception in Him. In fact, 1 John 1, 5, uh, there's, uh, this worked out to where these questions, uh, a lot of answers are provided here uh, in 1 John. But 1 John 1, 5 says this, This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so Satan was a created angel. He was created to honor and to serve God. Now obviously something went wrong, didn't it? It's very clear that something went wrong. And so the second thing I would say would help us answer this question uh, and really this is a question and a follow-up now that I'm answering because uh, we're really getting into the problem of evil, right? Because uh, it's simple enough to answer the question, where did Satan come from? Well, God created him and we can turn to these passages of Scripture, but then we really have to deal with the problem of evil, don't we? Uh, and that's really the heart of any question about Satan is how did we get evil, right? Where, where, did, uh, where did it come from? And again, this is where we can have lengthy conversations. Theolo the, uh, theologians have lengthy conversations about this and we'll continue to do so. But now, uh, we, we know that, uh, that something went wrong. We know that some created angels rebelled against God. On two occasions, in the, New, the New Testament speaks of a time when angels turned on God and fell into wickedness. 2 Peter 2.4 For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And then Jude 6 And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Again, that one was... Jude 6. 
And so according to Scripture, uh, there was at one time this angelic insurrection against heaven's king, if you will. There was an insurrection against God. Now, to be clear, even though God created Satan, we would not say that God created sin. Okay, that would be in theological error. It would be in theological error to say that God did not create Satan. It would also be theological error to say that God created Satan and sin. God did not create sin. What we would say is that God created free will. Now, when we think about free will, uh, free will only exists if there is options, right? And in this instance, in this instance of free will, our options are obedience or disobedience, right? And so God in His sovereignty and His goodness and His grace in creating beings in His own image uh, gifted us, but also clearly gifted some of the angels with this gift of free will. And so what God did do is create free will. He created the opportunity to choose. What Satan did was abuse that opportunity to choose and disobey God. So uh, really Satan committed the original sin by rebelling against God, right? A lot of times when we talk about the original sin, we're thinking about Adam and Eve and their disobedience. But the first sin was really Satan, right? And then he, uh, he uh, went from that sin on to deceive God's uh, perfect creation. Now, uh, again, for, for there to be freedom of choice, there has to be the possibility for disobedience, right? And so that's the reason we're talking about Satan using his free will to commit the first sin to rebel against God. Uh, this is why John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44 says, ye are, the f- ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there was no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Right, And so uh, the Gospel of John is telling us that, uh, that sin originated with Satan, right? Not with God, but with Satan. Satan's abuse of um, the goodness and the grace of God in his uh, creation. So any follow-up questions? I'm sure there are, but uh, any follow-up questions that you think relate pretty closely to what we're talking about here? All right, well, we'll move on to our uh, third question here. This one is a, a little bit, uh, it's, it's a little bit of an easier answer as far as time goes. And the question is simply this, how do I know God hears me when I pray? How do I know God hears me when I pray? Now, one reason, of course, we know that God hears our prayers is because He has promised to hear them, hasn't He? Even if He doesn't always answer them the way we think that He should, He still hears us. And let's be honest, sometimes when God's not answering the prayers that we think He should answer, uh, in the way that we think He should answer them, uh, we are tempted to have these sorts of thoughts. Like, how do I know if God's even listening, right? How do I know if He's even hearing me? I've been praying this same prayer uh, for, for days, for weeks, for years, Right? Um, I'll tell you a really easy, close-to-home way that this will affect you is praying for a loved one's salvation, right? You pray and you pray and you pray and you get to the point, 
is God even listening to me? And so um, this is not an uncommon question at all. Um, it's a question that sometimes we're more tempted to ask than uh, we are at other times. But we know that He's promised to hear us. The psalmist declared, Psalm 55, verses 16 through 17, As for me, I will call upon the Lord, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and He shall hear my voice. When will He hear my voice? Evening? Morning, noon, middle of the night, middle of the day, He will hear my voice. Now, there's a number of other scriptures that repeat this same truth. Um, and, and I don't, I mean, just countless that we could go to. But for sake of time, uh, maybe the reason we ask this question to begin with is we feel like we're not getting answers to our prayers, right? Maybe that's, maybe that's the spirit behind this. So let me say this. God does always answer prayer. He always answers prayer. He doesn't always answer prayer the way we expect Him to answer it. He doesn't always answer prayer in the time we expect it to be answered. But He does always answer prayer. And sometimes, and no fault of God's, but our own fault, He's answered prayers and we don't even realize yet uh, that He's answered them. Now, Scripture tells us that God answers a very specific kind of prayer. Um, but it also tells us that He answers our prayers in a very specific kind of way, I think. Uh, the, the very specific kind of prayer is those that are accordance, in accordance with His will. We spent a couple of Sundays actually talking about this because it's mentioned a couple different times in John's Gospel as Jesus is giving His final instructions to His disciples uh, to pray in His name, right? To pray in accordance with His will. But again, uh, let's appeal to 1 John since we're already there tonight. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we seek anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. Now let's also think about um, the purpose of our prayers here just briefly before I uh, answer this last question. The purpose of prayer isn't to change God's mind, right? Um, the purpose of prayer um, is, is one, and this is always primary. The purpose of prayer is to praise God. Right? Uh, we, sh we should never go to the Lord in prayer that we don't offer our praises first, right? our thanksgiving first. So that's goal number one. Goal number two of our prayer is actually to bring our will into accordance with His will. And so when you start praying something, you may be praying something that's out of line with His will. right? And this is why we can say God always answers, because as we continue to pray for that thing, if we're praying serious, biblical, uh, true uh, faith-inspired prayers, as we're praying for those things, all of a sudden we're not changing God's mind. It, it, it's not like we're convincing God, oh yeah, that was a bad idea, I'm not going to do that, right? Um, that, was a, that was sort of a bad situation, I shouldn't have ever let that happen, my bad, right? God doesn't make mistakes, so we're not changing His mind, we're not convincing Him of, of doing something differently. But what is happening as we are petitioning God, right? As, we're, as uh, we're in that throne room, if you will, God is, uh, is, is transforming us, right? He's conforming us more into the image of His Son Jesus. And as we are conformed more into the image of His Son Jesus, we begin to see the thing that we're praying about 
the way God sees the thing that we're praying about. One of the most practical ways I think that all of us have seen this play out in someone's life, and I was fascinated by this for a long time before I made the connection, is how much peace certain believers have at the end of their life. Right? You all can think of people that you've seen like this, right? And yet all of us have probably had some point in life where we're, we're scared of death, right? Even as a believer, you're scared of the idea of, of, of dying. You may still be like that now. And, and I've often wondered, how in the world can someone who's laying on their deathbed know that they're dying, how can they not just be consumed with fear of the unknown, right? Even, even though I know I'm going to heaven, What's it, what's it going to look like in that instance between now and then? How, is it going to hurt? What is, this, what is this going to be like? And the reason that believers can have so much peace and so much confidence in that final stage of life is even as they and others have been praying for their healing, God has been changing how they view the situation. They're starting to view the situation the same way God views the situation. And God doesn't fear death. And so even though we may be uncertain about how those last moments will be, people laying on their deathbed, they don't know what those last few days are going to be like exactly. As they've been praying for healing, as they've been praying for peace, as they've been praying for confidence, God has been giving them eyes to see the situation the way He sees the situation. And that's when we say they've got that peace that surpasses all understanding. The reason it surpasses all understanding is because we can't even understand sometimes that we're seeing a situation the way God is seeing it. But it's a practical example of how that looks. Let me move on because of time here. And we'll ask follow-up questions if you got one to that or to this last one. This is a very practical question, uh, one that many of you may not have confronted yet. But if you're faithful to do evangelism in the current cultural climate, you're going to come across this at some point. The question is, is this, and I've paraphrased this one just a little bit, um, but how do I talk to non-believers about issues of gender dysphoria and, tr and transition operations? And so we're talking about gender change here, right? Gender dysphoria is this, uh, this problem where uh, someone who is a biological gender um, has uh, in their mind that they should actually be um, a, a different gender. Uh, and, and this question was asked specifically about uh, someone, a, a friend who has a, who has a child that, um, if I remember correctly, has actually had a surgery or is preparing to have a surgery. And this family is non-believers. And so how do we talk to non-believers about these things? Let me say this, and this doesn't just apply to this specific issue. This applies to a lot of um, issues of moral failure. Don't expect a non-Christian to place any value on your way of thinking. Now, let's just start with that. <laughs> Don't expect a non-Christian to place any value on your way of thinking. Listen, without the power and influence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, none of us seek to obey God. Right? It's the indwelling spirit that causes us to seek to obey God. And so right from the get-go, we're talking about non-believers here. We're talking about someone who doesn't have the indwelling spirit. So they're not seeking to obey God because the spirit's not in them, uh, causing them to seek to do that. And so your unsaved friend or neighbor has no reason to want to conform to what to them seems like some sort of arbitrary, outdated social norms, uh, much less follow the precepts and principles of Scripture who they 
very likely considered to be, uh, to, to be dated or, or ancient, right? Um, and so trying to force, let's think about it this way, trying to force a non-believer to behave in ways that honor Christ is, is going to be futile for one. But two, it's going to be incredibly offensive to them. It's going to break the relationship with them. And it actually undermines any future witness by trying to force them to conform to Christ. Because it's not possible for them to conform to Christ if they don't have the Holy Spirit, right? They've got to have the Holy Spirit before they can conform to Christ. And so we would, this is very fundamental to our understanding of the gospel and evangelism. People who are separated from God, from God non-believers don't need to act better. They need new life in Christ. right? And one of the mistakes that we make so often, even as we attempt to do evangelism, is we want to get them to act better first so then we can share the gospel with them. And we got that backwards. They can't act better until they've heard the gospel and received the gospel. And so sometimes our forcing them, trying to force them to act better, actually breaks that line of communication that you had established in order to share the gospel of hope with them and uh, have them invite the Holy Spirit into their life who will actually make it possible for them to act better. And so when we think about these things, we do need to compassionately consider the spiritual task that lies before us. Listen, the average non-Christian has before they can do anything else um, of, of value when it comes to living better, as we, as we might put it, they have to trust God with their soul for salvation. Now, most of us didn't have to think about giving Him our struggle, our struggle over something as uniquely personal as gender identity, right? Gender identity was not in debate when... Anyone besides my children in this room and John were children, right? Even for Autumn and I, right? Gender identity wasn't in debate, right? And so none of us have ever had to experience this, right? We had to surrender our sinful nature, right? Whatever our sinful nature was leading us to do, uh, whether it was issues of alcohol or drugs or lust or just pure disobedience, whatever the case may be. Now, to people who identify as trans, right, as transgender, it's that T in LGBTQ. People who identify uh, this way, who come to Christ, they must surrender their sexual identity to Him. And that's really a profound act of trust for people who are dealing with gender dysphoria. Now, in this specific scenario that we're talking about, this can sometimes be helpful and it can sometimes not be helpful. I do think it could be really helpful when talking to the parents of someone or a family member who has a considerable input into the life of someone who is considering some type of medical transition. It can be helpful to encourage them to consider the actual facts. Now, we could have a whole conversation about actual facts because somehow, some way, actual facts have become facts that are debated about whether or not they're actual. Right, but I want to just share with you some of the some of the medical facts that are coming out as uh, as this situation of transgenderism increases. Now, this is from the National Library of Medicine. Trans people are five times more likely 
to have mood disorders. So that would be major depression, bipolar disorder, things of that nature. Then just your average person, people who are experiencing gender dysphoria, who have endured transition, are five times more likely to have mood disorders. They're, uh, they're let's see, also five times more likely to have anxiety disorders. They're 12 times more likely to experience PTSD. They're 10 times more likely to have obsessive compulsive disorder. Listen to this. They're 28 times more likely to have personality disorders. And they're four times more likely to have substance abuse disorders. There's also been some studies. These, some of these studies have actually been in some major uh, print uh, publications in the last little bit, uh, but there's some, some studies now showing that within, a, within seven years of a transition surgery, a person is 30% more likely to commit suicide. Now, what do these statistics really tell us? What these statistics really tell us is that there are dire repercussions of going against God's created order. Serious repercussions. Physical and mental repercussions, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, when you rebel and you try to distort God's created order in this way, there are repercussions. And so all of this to say attempting to change biological gender is dangerous. It's dangerous rebellion against God's created order. Now, if you're talking to a non-believer, they're probably not that concerned with God's created order. But what they are concerned with is depression. What they are concerned with is personality disorder. What they are concerned with is anxiety disorders. And what they are concerned with is uh, the mental health that may lead to suicide attempts in their loved one. And there's, this really opens the door for us to begin to have a gospel conversation. Because we can ask that question, why do you think these statistics are the way that they are? Now, here's what most people who are in support of this transgender movement will tell you. The reason mental health is so bad is because of the pressures that society is putting on them. That may be true in other countries. That is not true in the United States of America. Right? Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, actually made this point. He said, you can't go into Starbucks without someone pushing down your throat that we should accept transgenderism, right? There's, there's not pressure on people to not be transgender. There's pressure on people to accept those who are transgender. And so it's a flawed argument, and it's not the reason these mental disorders are so high among people that are transgender because society's putting pressure on them to be their biological gender. If anything, society's putting pressure on them to go ahead and make the change. The reason these numbers are so high if you're familiar with three circles, it's an incredible way to jump right into three circles, right? God, at one time, this creation was perfect, right? Everything was in order. There was no disorder. There was no di mental disorder. And so how do we live in a world where anyone would even consider suicide? How do we live in a world where anyone would suffer from major depression or bipolar disorder or anxiety? How did this come about, right? Well, it came about because of sin. It came about because someone rebelled against God's rule. Someone rebelled against God's created order, and as a result, we have sin. And so it's this easy transition into an explanation about how the gospel relates to this situation. All right, any follow-up questions to that one or the question about, about prayer, either one? Hayden, a growl is not a question, buddy. It's not a 
question, uh, but just an observation. Um, Bobby tells us we do not get our prayers answered because we ask and miss, which you brought up prayer and will. Mm -hmm. But I believe there's one other thing that if we have unrepentant sin, yeah. it's like kneeling at the cross on a filthy floor. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. If not, let's uh, let's pray together, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we are so thankful for um, your word. Uh, Lord, we're also thankful for the ability to think of questions, ask those questions, and see your word answer those questions. We're so thankful, God, that you are a God that is big enough to answer all of our questions, gracious enough to answer all of our questions, patient enough to bear with us in the midst of all of our questions. Lord, you are indeed a good God. And seeing our questions asked and prayerfully seeing our questions answered through your word is simply a reminder of your goodness. And so, Lord, regardless of what questions we may have, even, Lord, what doubts we may come across in our faith, we're thankful, Lord, that we can rest and trust in You, knowing that there is no truth apart from You. There is no good thing apart from You. There is no life apart from You. Because just as Satan is the father and the source of lies, You are the father and the source of goodness and life. And so, Lord, we're thankful for Your Son, Jesus that we could be reconciled in our relationship with you and that one day we will not just spend eternity with you, but we will see all things the way that you see all things and that we will glory at the, at, at the foot of your throne as we see all things the way that you see all things. And we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Locust Grove podcast. We're so glad you were able to join us today. We hope that you were indeed challenged and encouraged by what you heard. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast, regardless of what platform you're listening to it on. And do us a favor and share the podcast as well. We hope that you'll join us again next week as we continue to study God's Word together.